Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Anu Jacob, who is Director for MS and Autoimmune Neurology with a special interest in spinal cord diseases, who works at the Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi. Hi, hi there, Dr. Jacob. Hi, John. Thank you for joining us today. And Very nice to be here. And I should say uh, that before you uh, started working at the Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi, you were responsible for my training at the Walton Center in Liverpool. It I was my good fortune to train you. <laughs> oh, thank you. And it's uh, really what I was hoping to do today is discuss a couple of cases that highlight your approach uh, to a patient who presents with a suspected spinal cord problem. So to start things off, I'll just describe a first case and then we'll pause to discuss that. Um, and then we'll talk in general about sure. the approach. So case one is a previously well 22 year old man who presents to hospital with weakness and sensory disturbance. So he reported that his symptoms started the day pr uh, prior to presentation. And he remembers being aware of altered sensation in his right hand whilst he was out drinking with friends. Within minutes, this involved the entire right upper limb. A few minutes later, he noticed similar symptoms in his left upper limb. And at this time, he also noticed he was struggling to hold his beer in his right hand. Within about 15 minutes, he also started to develop weakness in his lower limbs and he needed to be helped out into a taxi and eventually into bed by his friends. When he woke up the following morning, he struggled to get out of bed and was unable to wait there. He also noticed he couldn't pass urine. He's otherwise well with no comorbidity. His neurological examination demonstrates normal cranial nerves. In his upper limb, you feel there's normal tone and there is some weakness. This is mainly of the distal muscles. You can see there is some weakness of finger extension uh, and as well as weakness in first dorsal interossei and abductor pollicis brevis in both the right and left. In his lower limbs, there is also weakness. This is affecting both proximal and distal muscles, affecting the hip flexors more than the hip extensors and the knee flexors more than the knee extensors. He appears to have lost his tricep flex <coughs> bilaterally, but his reflexes in the lower limbs are brisk and his plantar responses are upgoing. His sensory examination demonstrates loss of pinprick sensation just above the level of the nipples, and that's uh, symmetrical. And he is able to feel both joint position sense and vibration sense. So I'm just going to pause at that moment. We're often taught in neurology about the, how the neurological examination can help us localize the site of the lesion. What are your thoughts on this case? And are you able to localize where the problem might be? Okay, thanks, John. That's a very uh, comprehensive history and examination, and it'll be useful. So weakness is by far the um, most common neurological problem, complex neurological problem that comes to us. As in any neurological case, it's like being a Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie. You know, with very little uh, investigations, we can uh, identify who done it and where it was done. So, localization and etiology. What is, where, where is it and what is causing it? Now, you can't escape knowing certain basic facts uh, if you want to analyze this. And not a lot is required. Any medical student can, in a matter of an hour, read up and understand this relevant anatomy and the differential diagnosis to come to a conclusion here. So let me just quickly make sure that you guys are 
uh, understand what I'm talking about. So the brain sends signals uh, down the brainstem where it crosses to the opposite side, uh, down the spinal cord where it relates to the anterior horn cell and then into the peripheral nervous system. The upper motor neuron, which sits in the cortex, sends its long axon down, which crosses to the opposite side in the medullary, uh, the pyramidal decussation, which then extends downwards and relays onto the lower motor neuron, which is also called the anterior horn cell. From there, the lower motor neuron sends its long axon out and it passes through the nerve roots. It, the, the posterior and anterior nerve roots join together, sensory and the motor join together to form the spinal nerve, which becomes the, uh, many of them join to form the plexus. And then the plexus then divides into individual peripheral nerves. And the peripheral nerves end on the, at the neuromuscular junction and then onto the muscle. Now, weakness can happen because of a problem in any of these locations. But then how do we differentiate? Well, thankfully, we all know that the clinical differences between an upper motor neuron pathology and the lower motor neuron pathology. Remember that upper motor neuron is restricted to the spinal cord and brain, while the lower motor neuron extends outside it. I will not bore you with the many differences between upper and lower, but it's important to remember that spasticity is a feature of upper motor neuron, while flaccidity is often a feature of lower motor neuron. Acutely, um, uh, acute upper motor neuron lesions may be, may be, can be flaccid. Hyperreflexia indicates the uh, presence of an upper motor neuron lesion, mm -hmm. and uh, hyporeflexia indicates a lower motor neuron lesion. Also, the pattern of weakness difference differs between upper and lower motor neuron. If you think of upper motor neuron lesion, let's say in a stroke, you can remember how a stroke person walks. I mean, chronic upper motor neuron lesions will cause that particular pattern, anti-gravity muscles being stronger pattern, while lower motor neurons uh, often have uh, a flaccid weakness. So now, now that we know the various locations, it's easily understood that brain diseases should cause brain problems. That means cognition, cranial nerve problems. And spinal cord diseases will not have any cognitive or cranial nerve problems. Now, if it is in the spinal cord, if it involves the arms, it must be in the cervical spinal cord. If it involves only the legs, then it must be in the thoracic or even lower down. Mm -hmm. So upper motor neuron problems will be in the brain or spinal cord, and they will have, we can distinguish the location based on these features. And of course, lower motor neuron weakness, and each of the stations I told you, the, the anterior horn cell, the nerve root, the plexus, the, uh, the peripheral nerve, neuromuscular junction, and the muscle have one or two distinguishing very unique features. And you memorize that, and then you know how to localize it. So if the problem is in the brainstem, you'll often have cranial nerve, um, uh, associated cranial nerve weakness or dysfunction. While brain hemispheric problems usually do not have cranial nerve problems, except for the, uh, the lower facial, as you see in, in strokes. So those are distinguishing features. In the spinal cord, one can try to narrow it down even further. Is it the anterior part of the cord? Remember the picture of the spinal cord, the cross section? The anterior part has the corticospinal tracts. Then we have the posterior part, which has the posterior column, which contains vibration, joint position, sense, and touch. Then we have the spinothalamic tracts, um, which, which are placed laterally, and they, they will have um, a pain and temperature. Mm -hmm. And the central part of the cord is where 
the, uh, there is the crossing fibers of the pain and temperature. And the, uh, and the anterior horn cells lie in the, uh, the anterior part of the, of the central region. Mm -hmm. So if you remember that picture, we can localize very well. Now, going to the localization in this particular case, from what you told me, this young man developed right arm weakness, followed by um, his beer holding hand, shall I say, right hand weakness, and the then left hand weakness, followed by next day, the uh, leg weakness and bladder problems. Um, and you examine him, you find that as supported by the history, the arms are, are weak, the legs are weak, and bladder is affected, but the cognition and cranial nerve is fine. So that makes a brain or, or a brain, a hemispheric brain or a brainstem problem quite unlikely. That leaves the spinal cord and the peripheral nervous system, that is the lower motor neuron. Now, as you said in the examination, he seems to have brisk reflexes in the lower limb um, and uh, the reflexes in the upper limb, the biceps is two plus uh, and the supernatural is two plus. So certainly the, uh, the lower limb seems to be uh, 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 hyperreflexia and the upper limbs, some reflexes are normal, but the triceps is on one side seems to be absent. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also important to remember that you know, bladder involvement is very uncommon in unilateral brain pathologies. Why is that? Because bladder fibers originate uh, on, uh, on both sides of the brain and then it comes down into the brainstem and spinal cord. So it's, that's why in, in strokes, uh, in affecting only one part hemisphere, you don't find a, a, a persistent or permanent bladder problems. Incontinence is not often a feature of you know, a unilateral uh, event like strokes in the brain. But the spinal cord is such a narrow, small area that the bladder fibers on either side of the central canal are often uh, affected. And so bladder involvement is therefore quite early uh, in spinal cord pathology. So hmm. putting that all together, the hyperreflexia, the involvement of the lack of the lack of involvement of the, the brain and the brainstem, this uh, patient's, uh, this young man's problem is in the spinal cord. Where in the spinal cord? It must be in the cervical cord because the arms are affected. Mm -hmm. Can we narrow it down even further? Yeah, which part of the cord is it? Well, he's got weakness. Um, that means the corticospinal tract or the anterior horn cells. That must be anterior. He's got sensory loss. So he's got a, a loss of um, a pain sensation, the spinothalamic. Um, so this and what is interestingly spared seems to be the posterior column. The vibration is preserved. Am I right? Yes, that's right. So this must be a, a, a lesion in the predominantly in the anterior part of the cord mm -hmm. at the cervical level. Where, where is the uppermost level of the lesion? It must be uh, um, the muscles. You can go by the muscles innervating these hands and the reflex loss. So it must be C7. Technically, clinically, it must be C7 mm -hmm. because of the, the triceps reflex is lost there. And the sensory level is at the nipple level, which often happens. It's below the motor level, which often happens because of the lamination of the of the, um, uh, of the nerve fibers in the spinothalamic tract. So I would put my money on a, on a lesion in the cervical spinal cord, upper limit around C7, affecting the anterior part of the cord, fairly symmetric, I would think. Do you want me to discuss the AT, possible etiology? Love you too. Just before we go on to that, um, could I just ask, uh, I didn't put the record, I didn't put the documentation here, but something that students may not do routinely is check for abdominal reflexes. Do you find that that can be helpful when 
examining patients where you suspect there is a spinal cord pathology and what would be the expected findings in a case like this? So uh, abdominal um, reflexes, yes, they can be helpful. Um, it is a, I mean, it is le done less and um, less nowadays, but in typical classical neurology is an important tool. So acute spinal cord lesions, as in, uh, you know, infections, inflammation, etc., will lead to loss of superficial abdominal reflexes, while chronic problems like know, uh, primary lateral sclerosis or degenerative conditions, um, often they are still retained. So yes, the loss of abdominal reflexes will support um, uh, a spinal cord localization mm. and uh, the presence of an acute problem. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, so moving on, so you suspect an anterior uh, spinal cord syndrome here. What are the potential etiologies and how would you investigate this? Okay, so in neurology, I mean, there are only so many causes for any any uh, presentation and you will all remember acronyms um, like vitamins and so on but I, I think of it as you know um, compressive causes like a disc for example you know vascular causes for example a stroke occlusion of an artery or a venous problem like an arteriovenous malformation for example i think of inflammation which can be because of infection like an abscess or um, immune mediated problems like uh, you know, MS or neuromyelitis optica or a post um, infectious uh, post vaccinal myelitis or any post viral myelitis. Mm -hmm. I think of tumors um, and uh, tumor related like paraneoplastic disorders. Um, and tumors include things like ependymoma, astrocytoma. I think of electrical problems um, in, in the nervous system. Uh, for example, you know, migraine. Of course, it's, and epilepsy is an electrical problem in the brain. So I'm thinking of the categories of illnesses. Mm -hmm. I always think of metabolic and, and toxic um, uh, nutritional problems where uh, you know, the, the symptoms are often slower and often symmetric. And of course, I always think about, you know, is this you know, psychogenic uh, causes? So these are the main categories of, of diseases in the, in the nervous system. Now, applying that information here, quickly to run through. Can this be metabolic or toxic or nutritional? Um, well, it's rather quick. Metabolic toxic nutritional happens over you know, days um, or, or, or weeks or months, so unlikely. It is not psychogenic because clearly um, there is a clear objective weakness here. Mm -hmm. No electrical problems. Well, this is not epilepsy. It can't be migraine because you know, migraine affects, uh, doesn't affect both sides the way it's affected here. And it's not the pattern. We all know how migraines are. Is it a tumor? Well, tumors usually develop over weeks and months. Uh, so that's not likely. Paraneoplastic, it has to be over many months or weeks. Is it inflammatory? Uh, good possibility. Um, especially in a post-viral myelitis, etc. can happen. Again, it's, you know, white blood cells have to go there or antibodies have to go there and cause damage. It takes time. It doesn't happen instantaneously over minutes and seconds. So that's, that's um, lesser on the cards, but it is a Patients can often delay reporting symptoms and the history is often unreliable. But assuming he's right, um, it, it seems less a lesser possibility. Infections, um, maybe, but it is too quick and he didn't really have any prodrome. Mm -hmm. Compression, like a disc, well, he didn't have any injuries. Why should a young man get a disc? So it seems unlikely. And again, it's a slow process. If, of course, he had fallen down and then he developed, if he had fallen down and hit his neck, that would be different. He would certainly think about a compressive problem. So that leaves us really with, uh, with uh, uh, a vascular 
and it fits the bill. You know, when a vessel gets occluded, it happens very quickly. You know how stroke develops very quickly. So it could be a, a vascular problem, and I mean, an, an arterial vascular problem. You know, um, arterial venous malformation, arterial venous uh, malformations take many weeks and months to cause problems. So really, if you're strictly narrowing it down based on the history and exam we got, mm -hmm. this has to be an acute or hyperacute onset problem, and that fills a bit of vascular. And if it is vascular, then which artery is it? Well, it is with spinal cord, the cervical spinal cord, it must be the anterior spinal artery. Mm -hmm. Now, is it a typical presentation of anterior spinal artery? It, it possibly is because the, the anterior spinal artery supplies the, the spinal cord symmetrically anteriorly, supplies the uh, corticospinal tracts, uh, supplies the anterior horn cell region, the gray matter, and spinothalamic tract. So technically, this should fit an anterior spinal artery in function. Now, if it is that the case, then what is causing it? Well, you know, the commonest reason for any um, vessel to occlude are embolism. So think of the heart. Think of uh, uh, a disc can rarely embolize. Disc material can embolize into the artery. And then we have to think, is it a thrombosis? You know, if it is a, uh, a thrombosis, then what are the hypercoagulable uh, coagulable, uh, conditions we can think of? So those are my lines of thought. But mm -hmm. I know, I mean, I've been wrong many times, but I go the systematically each time. And yeah. localization, I would say, is in the cervical cord anteriorly. Etiology, I would say, is probably uh, 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 acute vascular event. Rare possibilities being, you know, um, uh, inflammation or, or infection. What do you think would be the most important investigation to do in this case? It, yes, it'll be an MRI scan of the, of the spinal cord. And if I had to have to choose in one area, I would go for cervical spinal cord. Hmm. But often, and if you have the luxury of doing more, I would do uh, the cervical thoracic cord and, and the brain. Okay. And, and you can see there the, uh, the MRI um, of the spinal cord. So there is, so you can see on the axial, there's an arrow just pointing to the signal change within the spinal cord. And the radiologist reported that this did appear to be in keeping with... Um, uh, signal change that would be consistent with an anterior spinal cord infarct. Uh, the patient also had a number of other tests done, um, so including a lot of blood work, which didn't reveal any significant abnormalities. Because of the diagnostic uncertainty initially, CSF was undertaken. The protein was 0.61, the CSF was acellular. Um, do you think that protein significant? Is that something that would still be consistent with a spinal cord infarct, or does it suggest infection? Uh, protein was um, 0.61, is it? Yes. Well, in the upper upper limit of normal is 40, uh, 0 0.4. Um, so it's just above normal. Um, I, I, I think it will be still okay. If it was, yeah. you know, one gram, then I would say mm, that's unusual. I'll say like 200. But 0.61, I think is okay. I think it's probably within the range of normal mm -hmm. in this particular case. So I think that was the, the feeling of the team as well. And further questioning from the patient had revealed that he had uh, taken cocaine on the evening when he started to develop his symptoms. Um, what's the relationship between uh, drugs, illicit drugs such as cocaine and stroke? Is that something that you've seen before? Okay, so that's interesting. Um, so um, cocaine can cause, and it's a sympathomimetic, so it can cause vasoconstriction. And I know there are several case series of cocaine causing uh, strokes because of vasoconstrictive effects. Uh, it's usually um, in the brain, but I mean, spinal cord is, uh, is also entirely possible. Um, so I think that is probably 
mean, in the absence of any other source, I mean, is, is diagnosis of exclusion to some degree? So mm -hmm. I would make sure I am not missing any other cause here because you know I don't want him to have an, a, a different, you know, undiagnosed uh, or easily uh, easily treatable uh, condition. So I would investigate thoroughly. But if I don't find any other explanation, then I would, um, uh, I would say this is related to the cocaine. So, uh, so that's the first case, and that was a, a diagnosis of anterospinal cord infarct, presumed secondary to uh, cocaine use. Before we go into the second case, uh, you mentioned this is a, an example of an anterior cord syndrome. What, what are the other cord syndromes that are commonly seen? And, and do you have any tips for the students as to how they can be distinguished from one another? Okay, so um, the etiology of cord syndromes is what I said. There are only so many categories of conditions in neurology, and the same applies to the spinal cord. And we've already discussed that. Now, so it'll help to... Um, localization will help you narrow it down even further. So we can do it both ways. Once you know a location of a lesion in the nervous system, there are only so many uh, categories of illness that affect that part. For example, if you have a, a, a pins and needles in your hand, um, then there are only a few causes, right? It can be carpal tunnel syndrome, it can be an ulnar neuropathy, or it can be a plexopathy or a radiculopathy. That is pretty much the, by far the commonest causes. So similarly, in the spinal cord, if you have a myelitis, there are only so many, so many causes. Now, we can narrow it down by the, the localization within the cord itself. So mm -hmm. as I said before, the, um, if an entire cord is affected, um, it can be a transection of the cord as in trauma, or it can be an acute severe myelitis. If one side of the cord is damaged, um, then... We, you know, you know you've heard of the term brown sequard syndrome. You no, know, the ipsilateral corticospinal and and uh, uh, posterior column sensations are affected, and uh, the contralateral uh, pain and temperature um, sensations are lost. Mm -hmm. Anterior, uh, and that is typically occurs in you know inflammation like an MS plaque, for example. Um, in times gone, in um, in World War One and Two, it used to be happened when they used to have you know, gunshot injuries when the bullet goes through precisely half the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. um, in the anterior cord, as we just discussed, you know, vas uh, anterior, usually vascular. Posterior cord, um, that can happen, metabol highly metabolically active part of the cord uh, um, is, is the posterior cord and the corticospinal tract. So deficiencies of various metabolites can cause that. Um, rarely, they can have strokes affecting that part. The central part of the cord can occur in... Um, inflammation, like um, uh, various myelitis. You could have a, um, this, the central canal dial enlarging, like in syringomyelia, that can cause uh, uh, upper, uh, weakness of the arms and legs with uh, a suspended sensory loss. Um, you could have a, um, metabolically active tracts alone being affected. Um, so that can, for example, happen in uh, um, the Friedrich's ataxia, where uh, you know, the posterior column and the corticospinal are affected, mm -hmm. um, and so on. Paraneoplastic disorders, certain, certain tracts are affected predominantly because the protein, the antibody, in, antibodies against the proteins in those tracts. Um, so those are the clues towards the localization within the spinal cord mm -hmm. and uh, the etiology as we discussed before. Excellent. And now... Um... To finish with, we'll just go through a second case. I think this one will probably be a bit quicker, um, but just drawing on what we've already talked about. So 
We have a previously healthy 17-year-old male patient who presents to hospital with a two-week history this time of sensory disturbance and limb weakness. So he reports first noticing distal lower limb paresthesia and then a week later started to develop progressive weakness of his lower and then subsequently upper limbs. He's otherwise fit and well with no medical comorbidity. The patient does admit to frequent use of nitrous oxide in the form of whippets. In the 48 hours preceding his symptom onset, he'd used over 40 canisters. So his examination, once again, his cranial nerve examination was normal. This time, the tone assessment demonstrated spasticity in the upper and lower limbs, and he had uh, weakness affecting both proximal and distal muscles. So in the upper limbs, this was affecting um, L the extensors more than the flexors, and in the lower limbs, it was the opposite, so affecting the flexors more than the extensors. And he had normal pinprick sensation, and he had re reduced joint position sense, uh, and his vibration was reduced to the ziphis sternum. He also, uh, sorry, I should say, his ankle jerk was also diminished. So his reflexes were brisk, but his ankle jerk was diminished with outgoing planters. So um, are you able to localize uh, the site of the lesion uh, in this particular case? Okay, excellent case, John. Good, very good case for discussion. So again, here is a man with weakness. And in my mind, I'm thinking, is it upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron? So it looks like predominantly his uh, tone is, the weakness is affecting both limbs and it seems to be spastic. And the reflexes are all brisk, except for the ankle jerks. And the plantars are extensive, um, clear an upper motor neuron sign. So overall, there's an upper motor neuron problem. Now the question is, is it in the brain or spinal cord? Well, the brain seems to be spared. There are no cognitive or cranial nerve symptoms. So it must be in the spinal cord. Okay, if it's in the spinal cord, is it, where is it? Well, the arms are affected, so it has to be in the cervical cord. So the lesion is in the cervical cord. Now, which part of the cervical cord? Well, he's got pyramidal tract involvement, uh, because, corticospinal tract involvement, because uh, there is some spasticity. So that's one area. Then he has a posterior column involvement by loss of vibration. That's on the other side. So anterior and posterior. Hmm. What about the bits in between? What about the spinothalamic tract? That's not affected. And there is no you know, feature of a gray matter involvement in terms of a, of a wasting or so on. So, that's seen, so this seems to be more of a tractopathy. Two, two metabolically active tracts are being, uh, two tracts are being involved, the corticospinal and the posterior column. Uh, and, and, the, and the highest area, uh, area of involvement is the cervical cord. But then um, I also realized that in the peripheral nervous system, everything uh, points towards an upper motor neuron problem, except that his ankle jerks are lost. Now, clearly all of us know that all reflexes are brisk in an upper motor neuron problem. So how can I explain this particular reduced uh, ankle jerks? Really, I can't explain it based on a spinal cord lesion. So is there a coexisting peripheral neuropathy as well? Which might explain. Mm -hmm. So now we have two possible localizations here spinal cord and uh, a peripheral nerve. And this combination is, is called a myeloneuropathy. And there are only a handful of causes for that. So, so this is my, the primary localization in the spinal cord. Most of his problems are because of that. In addition, he may have a neuropathy as well because of the absent ankle jerks. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the etiology of the problem? Um, well, um, 
we'll have to run through our list again. Is it vascular? Well, it's unlikely because we know in the spinal cord, vascular means usually anterior spinal artery, and we know how the presentation of that is. Is it an inflammation? It could be, but again, it's affecting anterior and posterior separately. Inflammation spreads from one to the other. Um, so it's unusual that this is an infectious inflammatory problems. Why should it spare the spinal thalamic tract? Is it a, a tumor? Is it a disc? No, with many reasons why it shouldn't be that. Is it a psychogenic? No, because there are clear objective signs. Is it a, a paraneoplastic? Very unlikely that the course is too young. Again, a young man. All your young men are getting uh, unwell, John. What are you doing? <laughs> so again, that com then comes the possibility, is it metabolic, toxic, nutritional category? Now, in that category, you know, does it fit the bill? Well, it is a subacute onset. Okay, It is symmetrical. Uh, so that is what you typically expect. So that gives me a handle now. So what are the conditions where you can have a, 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 myelo, a myelopathy with a tract involvement um, that brings in conditions like, um, you know, as I told before, you know, um, deficiencies of you know, B12, folate, um, copper, uh, and rare other tractopathies like you know, spinal cord and so on. But spinal cord, no, sorry, fritus uh, um, ataxia is a genetic disorder, but uh, and it's not a part of a myeloneuropathy. Clearly, the history and examination in, in Fredericks is uh, different, but it's a, uh, you can categorize it under a tractopathy. Mm. So I think in this group, I think we have B12, um, B12 deficiency um, is, a, is a good possibility. It will fit the bill. And in fact, B12 can cause a peripheral neuropathy as well. So in, the, in terms of myeloneuropathy, um, B12 fits the deficiency of B12 or unmasking an underlying B12 deficiency can uh, can explain everything. How does how do we tie it into the nitrous oxide? Well, um, you you may already know this. Um, nitrous oxide inhibits uh, the B12 um, B12's function. You will know you may know that you know, B12 is an important um, factor for various enzymes, including enzymes that are needed for. Uh, De uh, um, development and maintenance of myelin in the nervous system, particularly very highly active tracts, like in the spinal cord, are more vulnerable than other parts. Mm -hmm. So one could say, one could postulate that, assuming all that you have said is correct, this is a deficiency of uh, uh, B12, and that is being made worse by exposure to nitrous oxide, which inhibits uh, B12. Okay, and um, in terms of the investigations you do for, for this patient, I presume they're similar to the other patient, so you'd want an MRI of his spine, and here is the, the MRI, and you can see um, it is abnormal, and the first image there, you can see that over many spinal cord levels, there is increased signal change within the spinal cord, and then when you look at the axial, this seems to have a, pre a predilection for the posterior parts of the spinal cord. Does the MRI support your hypothesis or does it raise other possibilities? No, I think it does. I think the posterior cord involvement fits. If we had a higher resolution MRI or at a microscopic level, I'm sure there'll be involvement of the corticospinal tracts too. So I think this is in keeping with our clinical suspicion. Okay, and then we checked his vitamin B12 level and the lower limit of normal is 200 milligrams per milliliter. And 
his actually was in the normal range, 233 milligrams per milliliter. But the consultant um, working up was still very suspicious of a B12 deficiency and checked for B12 metabolites. Are you able to tell us anything about, about those and, uh, and how they can help with uh, diagnosis such as this? Yes, yeah, so, so I, think I, I did uh, allude to this earlier. So just because the serum level is normal, at the tissue level, the B12 levels uh, might be insufficient. And, um, uh, and the inhibition um, at, by nitrous oxide uh, at the tissue level may be sufficient to um, cause uh, the symptoms that we are uh, observing. Mm. So at the serum level, it's at the, it's at the lower end of normal. Uh, but at tissue level, it is probably subnormal. And, and that is what I think we, we are observing. Excellent. One more thing to, to say about this uh, case, if that's okay. Um, I think anyone looking at the MRI without looking at the full clinical story might be mistaken for thinking that that could be what's termed a longitudinally extensive myelitis or transverse myelitis. And that perhaps raises alternative possibilities, which I know you um, could probably do a whole separate um, talk about, which is neuromyelitis optica. Just would be, I think, worth just saying before we uh, finish the podcast about inflammatory cord diseases. Are there any, um, are there any sort of big tips you would have for students uh, with regards to how you would investigate a suspected inflammatory myelitis? Yes, uh, thanks for bringing it up, John. So um, it would be remiss not to mention uh, an NMO um, or inflammatory myelitis in, in a discussion with me. So, I mean, by far the commonest causes of you know, spinal cord diseases are, you know, compressive like a disc, or, or followed by, at least in the uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, autoimmune diseases like MS, and uh, a rarer cost um, like neuromyelitis optica, you know, post-viral uh, myelitis. Taking um, inflammatory disorders of the spinal cord autoimmune will usually have uh, an acute to subacute course. It's mm -hmm. a matter of hours to days. Um, it can, depending on the location in the cord, it can be, you know, um, begin as a unilateral problem then progressing uh, to become bilateral. It can affect the center of the cord. CSF is, uh, there will be corresponding, corresponding physical finds, including weakness, numbness, um, sensory level, and bladder and bowel problems of an upper motor neuron kind. CSF is usually, usually, but not always, abnormal. You can find raised protein and usually white cells. Neutrophils can be seen in certain conditions, but it is less common. Mm -hmm. Protein is slightly raised. And obviously, we need additional informa information here. So you would have to look for CSF oligoclonal bands, which indicates production of antibodies in the CSF. You can should do the brain scan to look for lesions of MS, uh, additional lesions of MS. And there are specific markers for conditions like a neuromyelitis optica, which is center of antibodies for acoporin-4 and, uh, uh, and MOG disease. Now, MS lesions are often quite small. They are one, two, or literally less than three segments uh, long in the spinal cord. While NMO lesions are typically um, more than that. So those are some clinical clues. Yeah. Excellent. Do you have any um, specific, or I'll put you on the spot now, but any specific, like two or three important messages you would give to any student who um, perhaps is encountering spinal cord disorders for the first time? Any, any key take-home messages? Yes. The first thing I want to say is to, to everyone, really, all students, neurology is a fascinating subject. And um, you just have to be, 
know some basic um, facts and have a, a genuine curiosity in diagnosing without uh, di diagnosing things. Um, and it's easily understood um, if you follow some simple principles. Coming to the spinal cord disorders, if you have a sensory level, bladder involvement, upper motor neuron pathology, then it's usually in the spinal cord. And there are only a, a few ha uh, causes, common causes of myelopathies. And uh, you will encounter in you know, 95% of the times those, and then the rarer ones less likely. Mm -hmm. But in order, if you read any standard book, you would pick up majority of these. So, and they are very rewarding to diagnose and treat because a spinal cord is prime property. You know, if you miss, a, I mean, just like we say brain attack, we should say spinal cord attack mm -hmm. because uh, the, 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 the price for missing a lesion um, early is catastrophic. And once you make an early diagnosis, you can prevent a lifetime of disability. Excellent. So, well, thank you very much for your time. And um, I'm sure everyone will uh, find that really useful to listen to. Thank you. Thank you, John, for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropopcases.co.uk.